0: Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for listening. To this is the Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic Podcast. I'm Dr. John Stenberg. I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. Meg Banich. Uh, why don't you two just introduce yourselves before we get into the content here?
2: Hello, my name is Dr. Kevin Pecca, and I'm an upper cervical chiropractor, Blair upper cervical chiropractor out of West Orange, New Jersey.
3: Uh, hello, my name is Dr. Meg Banich and I practiced Blair for 34 years in Montclair, New Jersey before retiring two years ago and moving to Florida. And Dr. Kevin Pekka is, Continuing on with my family's practice back in New Jersey.
1: Awesome. I, I want to start where you just uh, introduced Dr. Meg, which is that Dr. Kevin, as a Blair chiropractor, is continuing in your family's practice there in, in New Jersey. Uh, why don't you tell us, first of all, how you got into Blair and uh, kind of what the early years of your Blair chiropractic experience was like, both in your education and your mentorship, and then learning and applying the technique?
3: Okay, Um, as I said I'd practiced for 34 years, uh, 32 years of those doing Blair and I got into Blair because after two years of practice uh, I had graduated from Palmer College in Davenport, Iowa. Thought I knew my stuff, I guess I was doing the Palmer package and after two years I was so frustrated with um, my lack of confidence, my lack of results that my father said, well, you know, you really should go out and take uh, Blair from Dr. Muncie in California. So he paid for all my expenses to go. And when I listened to Dr. Muncie explain the Blair technique, it was like all the light bulbs went off in my head. And I got excited about practice, went back. Um, still, it was a long process for me to develop my practice, but that just set me off and made, gave me the uh, conviction to follow it through. So I'm very grateful for that. My father got into Blair in the 60s. He was in one of the first classes with Dr. Blair. The interesting thing is back then they had no workbook, no textbook,
2: <laughs>
3: and it was a five-day intensive. So basically these doctors took a week of their away from their practices, flew to Lubbock, Texas, which was the only place that Dr. Blair taught and sat in the Blair Clinic for five days with uh, a stack of yellow legal pads and took their own notes, drew their own pictures of their condyles and convergence angles and that. So I think of what we have today as far as videos and workbooks that um, some in our profession and our society have really worked hard to develop. And it's just mind boggling that these these people back then could get this. Um, Maybe a lot of them didn't, but (laughs) we had some great people to um, come out of those first seminars. It was interesting. When I was moving to Florida, I came across a picture of that class my father was in. It might have been one of the first seminars that Dr. Blair gave in 1963. And the first thing that I noticed was that they were all in suits and ties, which is a little different than today's dress standards.
2: Very different, yeah.
3: And uh, there were 17 men and one woman in the class, which I thought was kind of interesting. Whereas today, I know that I think the profession is pretty equally split amongst men and women.
2: Who was that one woman?
3: I really don't know. I run it, send that picture out uh, to Dr. Forrest or somebody. Maybe they can identify who that was. But uh, I would encourage women to get into upper cervical because... When I meet people, or at least when I did back then, they'd be like, well, you know, you've got to be strong to be a chiropractor. What do you do when a big guy comes in your office? And I'd be like, well, my first patient was a six-foot-four truck driver, long-distance truck driver. (laughs) And I toggled his atlas. He drove to California, wherever, came back and was so excited because for the first time in his life, he didn't have back pain. (laughs) So if I had to, you know, do a Gonstead maneuver or a lumbar roll on that guy, I don't know if I could have, but I had the faith that adjusting at the top would influence the full spine, and it indeed did. So I think it's a great uh, profession. I mean, obviously upper cervical gets the results, but it's also easy on the doctor. My father practiced uh, till he passed away at age 86. So he did it for 60 years, and he never really lost his toggle. He was still pretty good near the end. So um, that's a plug for upper cervical.
2: And Dr. Meg, what were some of the light bulbs that went off in your head during that first seminar that really resonated with you that thought you this might be the technique for you?
3: Well, I was pretty much a math and uh, science geek. I had been a chemistry major, a minor in physics, and I guess I didn't like that I had no confidence in the adjustments I was giving, that I could influence what I thought I was influencing, have measurements to see that I was getting, you know, desired results. So that upper cervical fit the, the bill. It had a, um, especially the Blair technique, because the theory of how the bone moves is the only one that makes biomechanical sense to me. Uh, as opposed to some of the other upper cervical techniques. And I could see the preciseness of the x-ray analysis and the adjustments. So it just made a lot of sense that I could actually customize the adjustments of the patient, have criteria to know that I delivered the adjustment effectively, and then just basically sit back and watch the patient heal.
2: Beautiful.
1: Now, Dr. Meg, when you uh, think back of those those early seminars, your first several experiences, what were the things that uh, what were the things that were the most difficult for you to apply you know because once you get back and you're fired up and you want to start you know doing this blair work with patients, uh, what were your initial hiccups and the things that you know were a little bit more difficult than you thought?
3: Oh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> um, I do remember being very confused about the opposite side adjustments and the double adjustments. But I think that uh, you just have to keep reviewing it and learn the basic adjustments. And then you realize that the combination or or multiple misalignment adjustments are really putting two adjustments together. Mm -hmm. I think a problem people have is when they get out in the practice, um, they feel isolated. They don't have the support of you know, a mentor or someone to watch them adjust. So I think it's really important to take multiple seminars, take as many as you need to master it, and also maybe to uh, get the videos to watch those. And come to the conferences where there's just tons of Blair instructors and people will be happy to help you out, answer your questions, watch you and, and make uh, suggestions and also learn from different instructors. I think if you get all your seminars from one particular instructor, you you may not get the full picture. Like I was talking to a young doctor yesterday and he said, you know, I had trouble with stereos until I visited so-and-so and he just explained it differently and hmm. all of a sudden I got it. So I do think that's important to have multiple uh, instructors, multiple mentors, to give you insight into how they look at things,
1: yeah, and when you think of some of these uh, adjustments specifically mechanically, there's a lot of moving pieces you know to perform them appropriately, and you think of different body types like Kevin's probably six inches taller than me, and his arms are twice as long, and I'm just a short guy, so what works for him isn't necessarily going to apply to me, but we can still apply the same uh, adjusting mechanics to the patient and and get a good correction, so I really Appreciate that uh, that insight. Speaking of, who were your mentors? Uh, obviously, your father was a big part of that, but who else did you uh, continue to learn from?
3: Uh, well, I definitely say Dr. Muncy because he classes in the '80s. Um, Dr. Blair was already gone, and if it wasn't for Dr. Muncy, this work wouldn't even exist. And he was he was a quirky guy. Yeah. He, he uh, <laughs> He yeah, reminded you kind of Mr. Magoo or something, but he, he would have this, you know, he, now kids, now kids. And some of the things he'd say were really funny. But one thing he said that really stuck with me throughout my career is he would just say, you've got to treat every patient like it's your family, like it's your mother, your daughter, your father, your brother, your grandchild. And it's true. I mean, you should really treat everyone that comes into your office the same as you would treat your own family. And he also said, if if he didn't do this work, like who's going to take care of my grandkids? Who's going to take care of my great grandkids? So those of us that have been involved with the Blair Society feel it's you know very important to keep training the youngins, get people excited about this work. And that's why I'm so enthused to be talking to you both, because I know you're quite a bit younger than I am, and you will do a great job of carrying on this work. Uh, another doctor would be Dr. Fred Harkins in, in Lancaster, California. He um, practiced uh, in Dr. Munsey's office for many years. So he knows a lot about the history of Dr. Blair, Dr. Muncie, and very uh, technically savvy with the work. But one thing he impressed upon me early in my career, when I was kind of frustrated that you know not every patient came in my office that had miracle results, and I was beating myself up. And he said, "Really, you're taking on too much responsibility. Your responsibility is to clear the patient's subluxation and allow them to express the most healing their body can." Mm-hmm. And and that really freed me up. And instead of focusing on the end result. I could focus on doing my job the best, and that's really what you have to do. You might have people in your practice that, you know, maybe they're alcoholics or on many prescription drugs, or they don't exercise, they don't eat good food. You can't really control that, and but you can control clearing a subluxation. You know, the patient is going to be better for that. And then lastly, I would say Dr. Forrest because he really took on the mantle. of head Blair guy from Dr. Muncie after he passed. And if it wasn't for Dr. Forrest, I don't think any of us would be here. (laughs) He really is like so dedicated and he, you know, would always talk to me when I had questions and problems. And I would say he to me is the ultimate model for a well-run patient education driven successful Blair practice. And he also is so selfless in what he gives to the students. If you come to any of these seminars or conferences, you'll just be blown away with his knowledge and how he freely shares it.
1: yeah, and just as a an aside along those lines, dr. Meg, there's on the Blair website there's a whole section of troubleshooting with Dr. Forrest, and it is comprehensive. I mean everything is there, and that's all of his own you know, of his own experience and knowledge that's freely available on the member section of the, of the Blair website. And he's got his 21 day patient education program that he'll freely send to anyone who wants it. And it is structured. It talks about all the main points, all the important points. And all those kind of resources are extremely valuable for young guys like Kevin and I, uh, I didn't because, even know that was
2: available. That's interesting. Yeah,
3: all very good.
1: It's amazing, and I've actually programmed it into my electronic health record so that they automatically, you know, prompt me to talk about certain things with patients based on, again, Doctor Forrest's wisdom and experience, and, and developing that over years. So uh, that's really valuable uh, thing to to glean from the Blair website specifically. If you haven't looked at that, you need to get in there and check out that troubleshooting section. But Doctor Meg, before we move on, I want to talk technique here, but Something you said about Dr. Harkin's uh, advice to you about taking on too much responsibility. And that's such an easy thing to do. And like you said, we can't control all the other aspects or factors around health. And let's be honest, you know, patients don't always tell us the full picture. But how do you set expectations for patients regarding their symptoms and how they are uh, wanting to feel better with, with what you just said, which is, hey, my primary objective is to keep you clear and to uh, adjust your subluxations, understanding that what you're feeling is a side effect of that. And uh, so how do you set expectations and help them to understand along those lines uh, as, you're, as you're managing?
3: Well, I think uh, it's always best to undersell. <laughs> if you have somebody who comes in your practice with you know, migraines for 20 years, don't tell them, oh, this is going to be easy. I'll just take care of that. Uh, you're always better underselling and just say, I feel I can help you and this is why, and then you have to keep educating them as you go. They're going to have questions. They're going to say, is this normal what I'm experiencing? And I can remember early in practice, I would practically give up on my patients before they would. I wouldn't be happy with their rate of recovery, and, and they'd be like, no, don't worry, I, I felt <laughs> you know, a little better. And <laughs> so you just kind of walk along this path together, and, but you have to have the confidence that you're really clearing the nerve interference, number one, and secondly, that their body has the ability to heal. And if you keep reinforcing that, uh, it's a long journey. It might, be, you might go faster than you expect or longer than you expect, but you know you're on the right
2: path. Under-promise and over-deliver. Exactly. Should we get into a little technique here? Yeah, let, let's talk technique here. So yeah, obviously the technique is, can be, you go to a seminar, it's a lot to take in. And then even you getting out in practice, some cases are more difficult than others, especially the x-ray analysis can be very difficult on its own. And that, that's probably one of the most important things because you can be the best adjuster in the world, but you could be giving the the wrong adjustment to that patient. And it all starts with the, the wonderful technology we have, the x-rays and the CBCT, so what is some advice you have for new doctors um, with x-ray analysis and just getting the proper listings, Dr. Banach?
3: Well, I would say um, you could never be too precise. I see sometimes young doctors, you know, take one seminar, go home and try to learn this technique and they're like skipping steps. They're going, Oh, I, I just do it this way. Cause I, you know, I get the same result and I mean, Dr. Muncie was very precise, and I know Dr. Blair was, and you really can't let things slide, so just hold yourself accountable, and also there are resources. If you go to back to seminars or come to the conference, you can get help. Uh, most of the instructors will answer emails if you have a question. And also, as Dr. John said, on the Blair website, I think Dr. Hubbard put up maybe 20 or so protractive views, you can like test yourself. See if you're seeing what, you know, the, the more established doctors are seeing. So there's resources out there and it's really just practice, practice, practice.
2: Anything that was difficult for you and um, the way that uh, the, the mechanics of setting up the patient for the x-ray analysis and just reading the x-rays?
3: I think the hardest x-ray we take is the base posterior because you can't really have any head tilt or you have a problem. Mm -hmm. And you'll have patients that come in either, you know, in talgic position or, you know, really bad spinal curve. And it's tough to get them in the right position. You may have to get that tube, you know, between their knees and shooting almost up at the ceiling or -hmm. have them lean way back. Uh, It's not ideal, but you have to get the right angle for your Base posterior, you have to be going, you know, approximately through the APL line, and no head tilt. And if you don't get those convergence angles correct, then your other pictures aren't going to be correct. So I would say that's the uh, the toughest picture that I had to learn to take, and I didn't have great modern equipment either. I think our X-ray unit was from the 60s when my father put it in to learn the Blair analysis. So it's just practice. The more you take, the better you get.
1: Yeah, I think I think that you know, us younger doctors, we're spoiled. You know, we've got CBCTs almost in every community now that are easy to get. The digital X-rays are phenomenal. I think that uh, you know, we we tend to maybe skip steps, like you were saying, or or gloss over some of the fundamentals because it's easy to get good quality images. Um, but understanding those fundamental steps and those processes are going to help you to troubleshoot those scenarios, like you're talking about, where following the checklist or the steps isn't going to get the job done for this patient, but you need to understand what you're trying to see, what you're trying to visualize and what's going to be the you know, appropriate way to get that picture and because there's, you know, plenty of opportunities for that to not fit the mold, right? And, and for patients to not play by the rules, but you still need to get that information. And, uh, I love that she said that you can't be too precise uh, because that's, that's why we're doing what we're doing, right? It's not that, um, other chiropractors aren't helping people. It's not that conventional chiropractic is bad. Uh, but our, our objectives have always been, you know, we want to help the people that nobody else can help, right? We don't want that. You know, those 20% of people that slip through the cracks, you know, that won't respond to a generalized approach. Uh, we want to have another option for them. And so if we start cutting corners with our aspect of chiropractic, then where do these people turn? And so I think, uh, you know, that's a really important point to underscore because it applies to each step Of the Blair procedures, you know, both from analysis, adjusting patient communication, management, all that sort of thing. So
2: you definitely can't be too precise. I really wanted to, to underscore that point. And I don't know if this goes more under case management and troubleshooting, but I know a lot of the Blair docs have a different opinion on this. I mean, say you're doing your X ray analysis and you see a misalignment at C1, C2, C4, you see a couple different misalignments that. Some Blair doctors feel it be um, appropriate to adjust all at once. Other Blair doctors might just adjust the Atlas and see what that takes care of. Dr. Banich, what is your experience with that? And um, what would you do in a situation like that?
3: Well, that's why it's called the practice of chiropractic. Yes. Uh, <laughs> everybody has their own little bit of philosophy or procedure. There's very variations. Um, I would say, look at the results BJ got, look at the results Blair got. They were really only adjusting, most of the time they were adjusting C1 or C2. And you just have to de- develop your clinical skills over time. And, and it's really, unfortunately, it is practicing on somebody. You have to make d- your in- best informed decision on any given day. Am I gonna adjust C1, C2, C1 and 3 I think if the patient isn't responding as you're expecting, then you obviously have to mix it up. And I would say go back to simplicity and just pick one segment to adjust on any visit and, and then see how the, the patient responds, if they hold that adjustment or not.
2: Absolutely. And there's one thing that you told me that I really loved. Um, there was, I think I, uh, I adjusted one patient's atlas. She did really well. And then she, she came back in and she slipped out two days later and um i'm thinking i might have gave her the wrong adjustment so i started looking lower levels i adjusted the lower cervical wasn't really feeling that well after and then um i think uh i texted you and you're like you know what just go back to basics do the c1 and um just start from the beginning and she cleared out beautifully after that so i think i was doing a little too much i was looking for other answers or other things that really weren't there because I was trying my best to get this patient better and just had to start back from the beginning and just take care of C1. Yeah.
3: I mean, that's what makes this uh, work so challenging. You you have to have the right listing and you have to deliver the right adjustment. And sometimes you don't, it's hard to distinguish which is which. So if you had somebody that uh, didn't clear well with, the C1 listing that you use, the adjustment you use, it could be that day you didn't do the best ASL you ever gave. Maybe Mm -hmm. you didn't torque enough. Maybe you weren't far enough over your contact point. Maybe the patient tensed up or was having like nervous thoughts while you were standing over them. So for whatever reason, that adjustment didn't hold. Now on the opposite end of that spectrum, I'd say if you think somebody's an ASL, and you've delivered an ASL six times in a row, and it hasn't held, I would suspect you may not have the right listing. Mm -hmm. So it is a challenge. And I mean, that's, that's what I liked about upper cervical, though, it's every patient that come in is a little, little puzzle that you have to figure out. Yeah. And you get a lot of satisfaction when you, you figure out their puzzle. And, and then to make it, Even harder, sometimes you figure out you think you have their puzzle figured out, and then a few years later, they're listing changes they have a you know, an accident or whatever, or or they're going through layers of healing, and all of a sudden, there's a different major segment you need to adjust. So, you know, it's always a challenge, but you have to be thinking.
1: You know, what's so interesting about that, uh, Dr. Megan, my Blair chiropractor, Dr. Joe Hug up in uh, Lakewood, which is just outside of Denver. You know, when I go up there, I come with all these questions that I've got as a young doctor. You know, what do I do about this? How do you think about that? And he always says, "Well, that's those are great questions. I still wonder about that stuff." You know, and it's you're you're always still having the same because you're working with people. You know, there are there are similar problems. You just get better at solving them. But it's not uncommon that he'll ask me to look at X-rays, and I'm like, "You've been doing this for 40 years. What do you want? You know, what do you want my opinion about?" But it's just the second set of eyes, and. And he's, uh, he mentioned to me recently that he's gotten in the habit of re X-raying for that very reason. He said, I'm seeing listings changing and, and things where I probably have adjusted too much and created a new subluxation and, and these types of things. And I really respect that, that level of humility, but it is important to check in on that, uh, every so often. Um, I want to, I want to talk about holding cause it's the kind of thing that we love to talk about. I mean, this is the, you know, the hallmark of upper cervical is that holding is healing and not needing to be adjusted is better than having a great adjustment. And so there's a lot of different schools of thought on holding, how long people hold, how long they should hold, what to expect with that. Um, In your experience, because I know, Kevin, you just mentioned a situation where a patient held for a couple days, other people can, you know, tout certain things about their holding values. Uh, In your experience, Dr. Meg, as you're you're starting new patients, particularly folks that have never had chiropractic, are there any uh, rules of thumb or things that you noticed in terms of uh, holding initially and, and how to get them to a really good point of stability.
3: Well, everybody's an individual, and you really don't know what to expect. It's, you said something interesting though. I found that people that never had care before held uh, longer. We you know would respond quicker, hold longer than people that had a lot of care, and it actually makes a lot of sense if you think about if they'd had a lot of uh, diversified care or a lot of you know manipulations over the years that you know their body was more confused. Their you know repeated things might have even made it the ligaments not as strong. So I got the best results of people that had never even heard of chiropractic before, and they showed up, even if they were 80 years old. <laughs> and also their physical condition. If somebody uh, is an athlete, they're gonna probably go through the uh, healing process faster than somebody that might be overweight sits at a desk all day. So I don't know that there's any general rules. I think you should be competing against yourself and notice that uh, the longer you are in practice, the less time it takes you to figure out the person's puzzle and get them to a point of, you know, holding for months you know, weeks or months at a time, and I was very impressed because when Dr. Kevin came into my practice, he was getting phenomenal results, and he'd have people hold a long time, (laughs) and I was, like, a little bit jealous because that wasn't my experience when I started, but he had had very good training. He knew right from the get-go when he was in school that this is what he wanted to do. He had interned with some of the best Blair doctors in Southern California, so he had a whole skill set that I didn't have when I started Blair. And also he had the confidence. He had seen, he'd been in office, he saw those those people hold and uh he, you know, he had that expectation. So I think expectation can mean a lot too, but you should just hold yourself accountable and see that you're improving over time. And
1: he also had the experience as a patient, which I think is extremely important if we're not practicing what we preach and, and being good Blair patients, uh, then, you know, sometimes expectations, like you're saying, uh, you know, can become confused, but I remember talking with Dr. Addington about this topic and he had mentioned that Dr. Blair would, uh, if he checked a patient and they showed a short leg and pattern, he would have them come back in two days, uh, or, you know, within five days and recheck them. And if they showed that same pattern two visits in a row, that's when he would adjust the major. Um, so I thought that was an interesting sort of rule of thumb. And I've tried to apply that for times where I'm not quite sure what I'm seeing. Is like, let's make a mental note and make some notes about what we're seeing here and recheck it next time. And if that's not changing, then we definitely need to get in there and and adjust you. But I've I've found in a number of occasions, times where I probably would have adjusted if I just did that. And they came back the next time and everything was great. So I think if you're going to err on either side, I think uh, err on the side of conservative, especially early on.
2: Well, it definitely, it truly is an art form because there have been times where I have completely thrown out my back. And I went into Dr. Drew Hall's office and I was begging for an adjustment and my leg was like, he said I was pulling and I didn't really know what that meant, but I was like, Drew, my back is like, I can't move. And he's like, you are in alignment. I promise you. I go back home three or four days later, everything started to unwind. And maybe if I was in an unexperienced uh, office at the time, I would have gotten an adjustment that day and it would have ruined everything. And um, my, pa- my pattern was out of whack. Drew just had the knowledge and the experience to leave it alone. And thank God he did because it all ended up unwinding. And um, it kind of goes back to what Dr. Bandit touched about before. Just it's an art form. You have to really um, you learn as you go. And I think maybe being a little more conservative, which we are in the upper cervical world, uh, can be very beneficial.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think you're totally right. I've heard every seminar I've been to that they've said, you know, when you're not confident or you don't know, aren't sure you should adjust, do not adjust. Uh, the challenge though is that as you know, we have patients traveling from all over to come to our office. It might be from Europe. It might be from Canada. And it's it's hard to tell them, <laughs> oh, by the way, you're in adjustment.
2: <laughs> yeah. Go
3: home, don't, you know fly home or drive eight hours, go home and come back in two days. So yeah. you, you really have to um, make them stay in your office maybe an hour, two hours. Come back in the afternoon. Let's recheck you. Let's make sure you're really holding because you probably are in that vulnerable stage, like you say, when the leg was pulling. And hopefully your body will will continue to hold and, and pull it together. But you also could be on the verge of going out. hmm so it, it, it always is a challenge, but yes, if you're not a hundred percent sure that you should be adjusting, do not adjust. You're just slowing down the patient's progress. Mm.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, let's get into some case management tips then along with, you know, kind of that line of thinking uh, specifically when you start new patients, what's your thought process around care plans and how you kind of, uh, you know, manage and guide a new patient through an initial phase of care?
3: Well, I, I was writing down some notes for this call, and that made me chuckle because when I went to, to Dr. Muncy's seminar back in the 80s, uh, if you remember, well, you don't remember the 80s,
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> not as chiropractors anyway, uh, in the 80s, insurance was king. And, you know, there were practice management companies saying, oh, you know, the chiropractic benefits are You can see the patient three times a year, the first you know, three times a week for a year things like that, which was crazy, because you're probably just gonna make the patient really sick. But um, when I went to Dr. Munsey's class, people would ask him about patient management. He'd say, well, it was, uh, let me try to remember, twice a week for four weeks, and once a week for four weeks. So like 12 visits over a two-month period. And you know, we were like, okay, so we'd all go back and do that and realize that we didn't have Dr. Muncie's skills. We weren't gonna clear him with the first adjustment, have him hold that adjustment for two months. And you know we needed to be seeing the patient more often. So I think you have to make up your own, what you're comfortable with, a care plan that, that fits the patient, fits what you're trying to accomplish. But I would say that you wanna be seeing the patient often enough that you can answer any questions they have as they're going through um, the healing process and be educating on each visit, telling them, you know, this is normal, this is what we usually see, a little more hand-holding, and if you're just seeing them, you know, twice a week, once a week, they may go through a bad, tough few days, and next thing you know, they quit, or they never got the big idea, and that would be the other thing I'd say, is everybody comes in focused on their individual problem, but if you really want to have a nice, you know, family practice, a practice of seeing people with all kinds of crazy neurological conditions, which Blair tends to attract, you have to be educating on that level. You can't just be saying, oh, we're really good at headaches and low back pain, because that's what you're going to end up with. So I think patient management, you're checking them, only adjusting when necessary. So I think in the early years, I tended to release patients too quickly or cut them down on the frequency of visits too quickly because I wasn't doing a very good job of that, that patient education. And so it's very important for people that are starting in this, this uh, work or you know, right out of school to have a, a coherent care plan and stick to it. Now, it's hard when people are traveling longer distances, but in general, I think you know, new patients, especially if they're acute, you have to see them three times a week. It might only be for a couple of weeks till so you get their puzzle figured out. And then maybe with more chronic people, I would see them not see them as frequently um, because they're they usually coming in because you're their last hope. And if if you you know they're traveling long distance, then I'd only see them twice a week or even once a week if that's really all they could do. But if it's not working out the way you expect, then you have to change the care plan and get them in more frequently.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And the reason why I ask is because it seems that everywhere you turn. For advice on this specific topic is from either a marketing or practice management perspective, and that's really frustrating because our, you know, for for at least Blair upper cervical, our goals are clinical in nature, right? We're not just doing a diversified adjustment every time someone walks through the door, and so our, you know, we want a care plan system that is going to be geared towards optimal clinical results, optimal patient results, rather than. You know what's going to be the best way to build my practice and make the financials make sense for people and all that kind of thing. So, as I've asked around, you know, in chiropractic, these types of questions, I've been a little bit, you know, frustrated with those answers for that reason. And so, I think that makes a lot of sense. And really, you have to take care of the person in front of you, right? I think that's what you're saying is it's it's important to consider their situation, their condition, the objective information that you've gathered. And, uh, you know, just, just work with the person rather than provide them three options. These are my standard care plans and, uh, you know, we think you fit into this one. So sign on the dotted line and, and that kind of thing. So that makes a lot of sense and I appreciate that perspective.
2: And I just want to say one thing because I was in a couple, I got to learn from a couple different Blair offices and Dr. Banich was, in my opinion, the best at just taking care of the person in front of them, making sure they're getting them well. Really, not worrying about the financial aspect. How many people? How many new patients that I'm uh, that uh, that she's seeing that week? She did her best at taking the care of the person in front of her, and by doing that, the financial side just came naturally, and people could feel that she was sincere and they she was out for the per the patient's best interest and in health, and all the financial stuff. It followed that, and um, you have a lot of people these days. Putting the financial things first, and I think it might be backwards if you just do your best to take get the p- new patient well, because that person's going to bring in new patients for you, and um, it's I think that's a great model to follow.
3: Thank you, Kevin.
2: So there's uh, I remember talking to Jeff Hanna about this.
1: He's a great Blair chiropractor down in Australia, and he has an awesome thermography module. So when we're talking about case management, pattern analysis. And he has really made it easy to learn and apply pattern analysis. So that's also available on the Blair website and it's phenomenal and well worth the investment. And he spent a lot of time on that. But one thing he mentioned in that uh, module is the only thing worse than over adjusting is under adjusting, right? And leaving that person subluxated longer than they should be because you're hemming and hawing over the, you know, finer points of analysis. So uh, can you think of instances where, uh, you'd either over or under adjust it and how you start to think about um, knowing the difference between the two?
3: Well, I think we already addressed a little bit about over adjusting. Um, Maybe the patient won't hold because you just keep confusing their nervous system with every time they come in, you try a different combination or uh, you just don't really have the correct listing for them. Under adjusting, the only thing I would say is, I mean, obviously healing takes time. And if, if everything you're checking out says they're holding, you shouldn't be adjusting. But what about the people that reach a certain level? And this would happen with me. that I would say, oh, good. Now you're holding for two weeks. We'll see you in two weeks. Oh, now now we can go to once a month. And if you have a wellness or maintenance patient coming in every month and you're adjusting them every month, you don't know when they went out they might have gone out the day after they saw you so in that case I I regret that I didn't bring people back and say okay now we're going back to every two weeks to find out when you're really holding because I think we do get into patterns and it's just easy to say oh see you next month see you next month but if you look at their records and you see oh I've adjusted them every month for the last six months well then I don't think you're seeing them often enough or you may not may have to go and reevaluate their x rays or take some new ones to find out. So that under, under adjusting, in my opinion. But as far as through the active care, uh, there really is no such thing. I mean, if they're out, you adjust them. If they're not, you allow them to continue to hold and heal. But I would say take a look at your people that your regulars that come. You know every four weeks six weeks eight weeks whatever uh, they shouldn't be adjusted every time if they are you're not seeing them uh, often enough
1: are there certain circumstances that you've uh, you know seen where folks tend to not hold as well even if they are great patients whether it's I mean the physical trauma or a new injury that's the obvious one but uh, stressful life circumstances or, or other health challenges that they go through uh, that that would cause them to maybe not hold as well where you'd want to see them more often
3: well, that's a good point. Um, I think the, the biggest uh, subluxator out there is between our ears. Mm. And if someone goes through, like you say, a particularly stressful life occurrence, they should be seen more often because you might have a patient that is holding beautifully months at a time, and then they, you know, go through financial stress or a divorce or a death in the family. And uh, they, they may not hold, you know, like their predicted pattern. So that's when I think you'd want to uh, bring them in a little more often, make sure that they're doing okay.
1: Beautiful. We've talked about a lot of this other stuff, um, full spine integration with Blair upper cervical. Um, if you consider that uh, when you consider that and how you've, applied that in the past, whether it was either an adjustment that you did yourself or you work with another uh, chiropractor, if you want to just maybe touch quickly on that before we move on, uh, if and how you see an application of full spine within the Blair upper cervical approach.
3: Well, this is a rather controversial subject. (laughs) Um, Maybe Kevin will edit this out. (laughs) Um, This
1: this is for the the underground (laughs) series. We won't send this to the whole...
3: we realize as a Blair Society, and there's been, you know, we, as a board, we've fought for this over this over many years. We can't tell people how to practice, but Blair Upper Cervical is a standalone technique. And I'm sure Dr. Blair never gave any lower spinal adjustments. Um, and when BJ decided everybody should be HIO, or uh, Upper Cervical, um, I think he forbade his students to adjust Full spine, which just meant they did it off campus. <laughs> but um, an interesting story for me is my own story. My grandfather went to Palmer and uh, graduated in 1921 when they did the Merrick system. Yeah. So they adjusted full spine, obviously. Then my father went to Palmer and graduated in 1948 when it was strictly HIO. and So all they were allowed to do on campus was toggle. So he had a strong upper uh, or cervical, you know, background philosophy. So he came back to practice with his father and got my grandfather interested in upper cervical, who had always, he'd always been a real fan of BJ's anyway. So they would always go back to Lyceum. And so they were really doing a combination of the two when I joined the practice. And, but all the adjustment, full spine adjusting was like Merrick prone. And I always remember my father telling me, if I could only give one adjustment in the office, it would be a toggle, an upper cervical toggle. And when I heard that, I was like, well, then why do you do the other stuff? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. But yeah.
3: I think we're all kind of, we wanna help the patient, so we think if there's something we can do to speed up the process, or to make the patient more comfortable, or make the patient think we're doing more, there's a tendency for us to do that. But my real test came when I decided to participate in Dr. Kirk Erickson's upper cervical research project. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, sent us the information, how to participate. And there were a lot of Blair docs that did it, which was fantastic because the Blair doctors had very good results in that research project if you read it. But I said, okay, I'm in this project now. I can't do anything to that patient except adjust the uh, upper cervical or cervical spine, I guess, if I was doing C3. So I said, well, this is a great test for me to see if all that other little, and I wasn't doing much, I'll tell you. I was doing a little, you know, rubbing the shoulders, maybe a little tractioning the thoracics. I wasn't doing, you know, very forceful adjusting or anything in the lower spine. But I just did upper cervical blare on the patients in that study, and I found that they did probably better than most you know better without the other stuff is what I'm trying to say. So I'm not telling anybody how to practice, and and people probably like doing other things, like integrating other things. And I don't really have that a problem with that. If you are call yourself a Blair doctor, as long as you deliver the Blair in the upper cervical spine, and you know that's it for the cervical spine. So if you want to integrate a little of this, a little of that, that's fine. But I really think that, that the more you integrate, especially if it's um, forceful, high-velocity adjustment, you're just slowing down the patient's progress or true healing. You might be getting, it might be palliative care, but as far as getting a full correction, I think um, just stick to the upper cervical.
2: And uh, Dr. Banach, so you are a third generation upper cervical chiropractor. You've been around some sound philosophy. What does chiropractic philosophy mean to you and how do you think it fits into practice?
3: Well, I think it has to be the basis for everything you do in your practice. Maybe the basis for everything you do in your life. It, it's really going to, how strong your philosophy is, is going to take care of how successful you are. Because if you really don't have the confidence in your philosophy and what you're doing, you're not going to get the results you expect so like i say i would say the chiropractic philosophy is so important in your practice your life it's going to dictate how you manage your practice and how you manage your patients
2: and is there any chiropractic philosophy that's really resonated with you over the years that you'd it like was to interesting.
3: share interesting um during some of the downs i had friends literally uh kidnap me and <laughs> throw me in a car and take me to a DE because my father, my (laughs) father was very scientific. He really, and he knew a lot of the greats in the profession. He knew Sid Williams. He knew a lot of people. So I guess he leaned more towards the scientific side and not the philosophical side or not. I shouldn't say philosophical is obviously love BJ, but you go down to DE and the philosophy was great. And they, they kidnapped me, took me there. They they knew I needed a, a pep talk, but and I went to a lot of DEs with them. But I was always torn because you would look in the back of the room and there would be guys jumping all over each other and being adjusted every hour on the hour. And then they'd be up on the stage. Oh, this you know, philosophy, chiropractic's great. And then you know, they'd be dead the next year from a heart attack or you know, liver failure. So. But one thing that stuck with me was, uh, I think it was Dr. Uh, Sigafoos who always said, we move the bone, God does the healing. And that, that really stuck with me. It's like, we're not God, we're not doing the healing, we're moving the bone. But in my mind, the more specific you are in moving that bone, the better results you get. So there would be doctors there that would be like, oh, innate chiropractic oh I just know that I put my hands on people and I gave that person the best adjustment you know they'd be seeing a thousand people a week well that didn't make sense to me because you know we're all called to God and God gives us direction but I don't think he tells you oh this person needs an ASL or this person needs an ASR so I do think you have to you know use your your mind God gave us a mind use your mind be scientific but also have a strong philosophy and believe in what you're doing.
1: Yeah. And I think that the, the science and the art of chiropractic is the application of the philosophy, right? And if we, um, you know, you, you mentioned about your dad, and I think that one thing that those guys had, you know, when they went through their education at Palmer was they were just rock solid in philosophy. So that was always, you know, I'd imagine a, a big part of their fundamental understanding of what they were doing is they had that, that philosophical base that I don't think we get as much of in chiropractic education. And so, uh, you know, there's probably a little bit more impetus for us to seek that out specifically, like you're saying, whether it's in seminars or, or green books or whatever that you do, because man, it's just, I went to Life University and that that's a considered a philosophical school, but it you know, we had a few introduction courses, but it really wasn't something that you got um, ingrained in you unless you went out of your way to do it. So I think that um, that's a that's something that's been lost in the chiropractic education and and so um as such a a key component of practice i mean there's there's got to be some discipline to get that you know on your own at some point or else it'll never happen and you kind of see in in the upper cervical world these days things kind of tending to move a little bit away from that and almost looking at philosophy as kind of a limiting factor where well now that we're cranio-cervical junction experts and we've got all this fancy imaging and upright MRIs and these kinds of things, it seems like a lot of the conversation is starting to move toward that. Um, when you see that kind of trend in upper uh, cervical, yeah, it's obviously totally very exciting you. if you see any um, potential vulnerabilities you know, with that. You you always
3: talk about the three-legged stool, the philosophy, the art, and the science. And you have to have all three, or a two-legged stool doesn't stand up very well. Um, and one thing I would say, too, is... I. I think you've hit the nail right on the head. When um, the big change in chiropractic education came about, with you know becoming accredited and becoming CCE and da 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 da. So, when my father went to Palmer back in the '40s, I believe most of the professors were chiropractors. So you had a chiropractor teaching, you know, biochemistry. You had a chiropractor teaching microbiology. You had a chiropractor teaching, I don't know, anatomy, whatever, all these different disciplines. So it was had, every discipline had a chiropractic bend and chiropractic philosophy embedded in it. And that wasn't really the case by the time I got to Palmer when they were going for accreditation, then they would bring in, you know, basically professors, scientists to teach all the the classes. And we had one class in philosophy, or I think in the, in the old days, um, you're right, those, those guys were so, imbe- chiropractic just became part of them after going to school because they were surrounded by all these chiropractors teaching them, and um, they also had no, like, fallback. <laughs> you got out there, and you, you weren't exactly accepted. You know, it was a very challenging time. People were being arrested for practicing, you know, medicine without a license, they used to call it. And um, the the original ICA that BJ set up was really to protect chiropractors from going to jail. And they would use their money to go out and defend these people in courts around the country to try to keep them out of prison. So I think that the profession has gotten a little soft. (laughs) Like we got accepted insurance. Well, now not so much. But. It was easy to make a living. We were attracting people <laughs> to the profession that just said, oh, well, I could be a physical therapist or a dentist or a chiropractor, you know, that didn't matter to them. It was more like Kevin said about the business side, which which is easiest to get, what school is easiest to get into, how can I make the most money? Instead of the people that, in the, back in the day, you went to chiropractic school because you either had a miracle yourself or a miracle in your family or your your parents were chiropractors, so it's a different era, and, and the technology and the things we're finding out will get us accepted in the scientific world and should really launch us, but we can't forget our philosophy. That's the only thing that makes us unique.
1: Agreed, 100%. So let's let's transition then and talk about the business of upper cervical care because that's a big part of your childhood growing up. And it's also been a big part of your life. So how did the well, practice I, I and had the an business of upper uh, cervical change kind of because, for you over the um, years?
3: Like I said, I was third generation. I come back from Palmer. My grandfather had passed away. So it was my father and I. And my father was a great man, <laughs> not necessarily a great businessman. Um, and he also uh, was a sucker for his daughter. So... I came in, if I said, oh, tomorrow we're painting the office purple, he'd say, okay. He let me do my own thing, which was good and bad. And he actually had a cash practice and I convinced them we should go to insurance assignment. (laughs) Because like I say, in the 80s, it was like you could send in a post-it with some numbers on it and the insurance company would pay you, you know. But um, we kind of dabbled in an assignment and then obviously, as I went along, I realized cash is a much better model because you don't know when the insurance company is lying to you. Uh, Medicare is a disaster, and besides which, it's a fair exchange. And myself, I you know when I went to the dentist, I paid. He took care of my teeth. You know, if I went to a lawyer, she gave me advice. I paid for her advice. So I think that cash is king. And we're in the unique position with upper cervical, we're really a specialist, a niche practice, that you should have no problem running a cash practice. And if the patients have decent insurance, they can get reimbursed. If they don't, they're paying it out of their pocket, and they're coming because they, their perceived value is what you're charging them. So that said, I don't think I think you have to be fair with fees. You can't charge, you know, maybe your adjustment is worth a million bucks to them, for their health, but you can't charge that. So you have to have a realistic, um, fee schedule. And, and I would say a cash practice makes the most sense to me.
1: And Justin, as a side with that, I've had a number of patients that went through the big practice management mails here in, in Colorado Springs. And, you know, when we talk about fees and costs and, and, and how that works in my office, people are like pleasantly surprised with how affordable it is for the value that we're able to deliver, you know, this kind of care with specificity and, and a structured system to work in. And, uh, so I've, I've, that was one thing early in practice that I was really nervous about is how am I going to talk to people about, you know, how much it costs to do this and that kind of thing. And then you sit across from a few people and like, Oh, well, my last chiropractor, it cost me $6,000. And I went there three times a week for six months and I'm, I'm in worse shape than when I started there. And so, um, you know, I think in, in some ways getting over that mindset uh, you know, early on and understanding your value and your worth and just being able to communicate that, like you talked about early on, uh, you know, as, as long as people don't have unanswered questions, I've found, um, you know, you tend to have better lines of communication, but, but that DE model of, you know, give love and serve out of a sense of abundance and provide care regardless of an inability to pay and all that kind of thing. I mean, there's, there's gotta be a time and a place for that, you know, but when you spend a quarter million dollars to get into chiropractic, um, you know, there's, there's a little bit less leeway, at least for me in that aspect.
3: Well, I I definitely think that's true. If you uh, charge a fair fee, you should have no problem explaining your fees to patients. And I'd say too, you know, I made mistakes over the years. You know, maybe it was after going to D, I don't know, but I decided I should have a family plan. I should do this and that. And I was always about my fee is my fee which I also heard a friend of mine who practiced, who said, that's the best thing your father, your father ever told me, <laughs> was your fee is your fee. Like, you don't say, oh, for this person, it's that, for this person, it's that. So make a fair fee and keep it across the board. But what happened was I had a family plan. Oh, I wanna see more kids, so I'm gonna have a family plan. And I made it, you know, ridiculously affordable. And my observations were, some people thought it was still too high, so basically, they wanted me to take care of their family for free, so they didn't appreciate what I was doing. And then I had some family coming in, and I enjoyed taking care of them, but I kind of resented the fact when I found out he was a dot-com dot-com millionaire and had retired at 35, and now I'm charging him, you know, a hundred dollars a month for his family. <laughs> so, you know, you have these. This, it's just be fair with people and. Obviously, don't charge more than you'd pay yourself. That was one thing I did. I charged chiropractors to come to my office and get adjusted. And I only started that after my friends insisted. They're like, no, you're worth it. Oh, you're worth more than that. And they insisted on paying. And I found out it just worked better. It was like a fair exchange. And same thing, you know, if I have a friend who's a dentist, I'm not going to go there and go, oh, you know, I got a cavity. Can you fix it for free? So if you really value what you do and understand the value it has in, in, you know, quality of life, lengthening people's lives, it's worth a lot of money. So charge a fair fee and collect it.
2: And Dr. Banage, when did you decide to, uh, you know, there's some people that you can just, I think you can kind of just feel that really want to get better and truly can't afford it. And, um, I know there was a couple of times where you would work with people. When did you decide that, you know what, I'm going to work with this person. They truly want to get better. We're going to cut them some slack.
3: Well, like you say, it's um, the person has to want it. I'm not chasing somebody down or from, uh, you know, discounted fee because I, you know, I want to see them in the office. I mean, if they don't want to get well, they don't belong in your office anyway. So you pretty quickly find out whether somebody's trying to just Bargain a deal. I mean, I had a, a medical doctor come to my office and want me to discount my fees once. And I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> so if somebody's truly uh, has financial hardship, definitely work with them. But it might even be like creating a payment plan. Like, okay, I understand you're out of work now, or, you know, the government went on strike. And I'm just going to say, okay, just, you know, you'll owe me. Like you can't afford the X-rays, we'll just pay it off. You know, ten dollars a week, whatever. But you really have to be. If the person's genuinely wants to be helped and is not just um, trying to discount your fees, certainly
2: you'd work with them. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And there's also the other side of the spectrum where uh, you have uh, patients that think they're more important than others, and they try to come in. And this is what I learned from you. They try to come <laughs> in on your off days, and they're calling you all hours of the night. And some for you want to help them, so you start doing it, but then it starts to become too much. So how do you set up proper boundaries as well?
3: Well, I think um, you have to have boundaries. And certainly if, if it's a true emergency, you can see the patient. But you have to have boundaries. Um, my father worked in a home office for a long time. And he didn't set up good boundaries. <laughs> he would have people drive by and if they saw him out and I was, you know, doing his lawn, they'd stop by and next thing you know, he'd be adjusting. Him. And <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And it, it helped that I would go to my sailboat every weekend. My patients wouldn't call me on the weekend. They'd go, oh, she's not there. I'm not calling. Once in a while they would, if it was a true emergency. And I say, okay, you know, I'll drive up, you know, an hour and a half or I'll see you Sunday night, whatever. But people respect your boundaries if you set them up. And if you don't, then it's very hard to establish them once the inmates have gotten loose.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you you just mentioned something in passing. I, I go to my sailboat. I mean, how how did you take good care of yourself so that you could take good care of people? Because I know there's times where, and you know, like it's just a grind. And if, if you're not, if you're stressed and you're overworked and you're not resting and you're not taking some time to yourself to to refill your cup, so to speak, you're not going to take the greatest care of your patients. So over the years, what sort of practices did you develop to make sure that you were, you're staying, uh, you know, top of health, both mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, so that you could then uh, use that to take good care of your patients?
3: Well, first, first confession, I'm not a workaholic. (laughs) Um, I guess my father was my mentor, but (laughs) I think with my father, A lot of times the family felt like the practice came before them, like we'd be waiting to go on family vacations and you'd have to, you know, see somebody in the office. Um, So I grew up seeing it, you know, it's great to serve, but it's also great to have a more of a balance, shall we say. And I saw that a lot at DE. These people would would have a big practice, but then their family life or their personal life would be in shambles. so you, yeah, you have to figure out what motivates you, how much how much physically you can do, and how much mentally you can do. But you have to have downtime. And for me, it was getting away on weekends. Um, I liked having once in a while a long weekend because then you're not like it's not that hard getting caught up. And then if you surround yourself with great people, if some if your goal someday is to work less, if you have you know, good associates, good office um, support, you can be, you can go, you know, work as little as you want, or get out of the office more, but if you have other, you know, hobbies or passions that, um, if you're not exercising those, um, you're going to feel, you're going to start resenting your practice, you're going to be like, oh, you know, I'm busy, I have a lot of money, but I can't travel, I can't go on vacation, I can't use my boat as much as I want, so I always, you know, made sure I had a good balance in that respect.
1: Yeah, that's powerful. I think sustainability is huge. I mean, if you're going to go the distance and take good care of these people for their lives and yours, I think it makes sense to, to be there for them in the long term and to take care of yourself so that you're, you're putting yourself in a position to do so. So Dr. Megus, we're going to start to wrap up here. Uh, I just want to take a minute to acknowledge you for your dedication to the Blair Chiropractic Society, to Blair Chiropractic and Blair chiropractors and, and being a mentor and being one of those people who's willing to share your knowledge and experience and advice, because that's tremendously valuable for us. You know, as younger doctors, uh, there's not a day that goes by that we don't think about those who have come before us and those who have paved the way and made it so easy for us to get into this. And I think that, uh, you know, you all often don't get the uh, get the respect and the uh, admiration and the honor that you do. So I just want to take a minute to acknowledge you for that and and let you know that we, we truly do appreciate it and that that legacy is, uh, is one that matters and, and that will continue to take us take with us throughout the rest of our careers. So from you know from both Kevin and I and the young Blair chiropractors, just want to extend a heartfelt thank you.
3: I certainly appreciate that. And if I could just say one more thing, practice is, is, is a roller coaster. It's up and down and it's only after for me anyway, after many years, that I got up to a level I was happy at and could sustain. But I would say to the younger doctors, if if you're kind of stuck in a rut, um, the tendency for most people, including myself, was to like isolate yourself. Like, oh, things aren't going well, so I'm not talking to anybody, because then I might have to admit things aren't going well. But we have such a great group uh, in the Blair Society, you should reach out and communicate with some of your friends or mentors or colleagues because they all are there for you. They want to support you. And it's also isolating in that you can't, it's about slipping and checking. You can't uh, see yourself adjusting and know when you've you slipped a little and your adjustments aren't as effective. So get yourself to some Blair seminars or the annual conference where there's a lot of camaraderie and a lot of great uh, technological information. So. Just you know, keep push through it if you get in a rut. And the other thing is, change something in your office. I was I was like, not that big on change. I'd probably wait seven to ten years before I would change anything. But if you're kind of feeling like you're in a rut, do something. It might be something as simple as rearranging the the equipment and furniture, or it might be something as big as taking in a associate or intern that you can mentor. Just change something if you're not happy. If you feel like you're stuck. Change will get you out
2: of that rut. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Banish, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Great episode. You've completely changed my life. I'm forever grateful for that. Um, The work you've done for the Blair Society is just amazing. And me and John are honored to have you on for our first episode here.
3: Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, watching you two carry on the Blair Profession.
2: Absolutely. Looking forward to it.
3: Thanks, Dr. Meg.
0: Okay, take care. Have a great day.
2: Yes, you too.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairetechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.